Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Word of God for our consideration this morning is our first lesson, Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9, as printed in your bulletins and already read. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, as a general rule, it is good practice to tell positive stories that reinforce the truth or value of a point you are trying to make. You want them to be remembered, and you want people to remember the right way to do or understand things rather than the wrong way. I recall one of my classmates in a doctrine class at Northwestern College getting an answer on a test rather spectacularly wrong, largely because the illustration used to explain the wrong view was much more memorable for him than the right view. But sometimes we learn more from other people's errors than from their successes, probably because when we're honest with ourselves, we find it easier to relate to their missteps and imperfections than to someone else's right steps and perfections. Our text from Deuteronomy 6 is clear enough about what it is we want to be and to do, but what happens when those instructions make contact with the lives of real people like you and me? So let's consider a a number of examples and see what they help us understand, what truths they direct us toward. Maureen was very concerned for Christianity. She had lived long enough. She wasn't afraid to tell you she was 71. She had lived long enough to see a lot of changes in society and the nation, and none of them, she thought, were in the right direction. From the war on Christmas to the things that you just couldn't say without getting in trouble anymore, she saw it all as moving her country away from its Christian roots, And that frightened and angered her. She knew what she had to do. Fight. She didn't have that much money to spare, but but what she had, she gave to to the right political candidates and and the non-profits that that represented her views. She still had some energy left and and lots of time now that she was retired, so anything extra she had, she she used to volunteer and and march and, and stuff envelopes and even knock on some doors in her community. She even gave in to the pressure of her friends and family and got an account on Facebook so she could argue and influence outside her community. And the more Maureen did, And the deeper she got involved, the more she found her identity as a warrior for God against the decay of society, and the more frightened and angry she felt, and the more any loss devastated her. Bob and Mary Thompson had talked about it before they had kids, and they had decided that if being Christian meant anything, it meant being all about love and freedom, not anger and rules. So after Jennifer and then Matthew came along, they had a clear understanding and plan for how to raise them. Sure, they had a few rules around the house, but but, but they were mostly things like don't touch the hot stove or stay out of the street, things that were, were just about keeping the children out of danger. Otherwise, 
And they were happy to tell this to all their friends and neighbors and churchmates and the parents of their kids' friends. Otherwise, they just encouraged Matt and Jenny to do the right thing, told them that they loved them even when they did the wrong thing. That was, they said, the only Christian way. A time came when Bob in particular got frustrated and confused. When the kids got older, not not even middle school yet, they started saying they didn't want to go to church. And he and Mary couldn't talk them into it, and since they couldn't very well leave the kids home alone, that meant the entire family stayed home an increasing number of Sundays. By the time high school came around, the parents could attend church again, but the kids rarely came with them. When other members asked them, Bob and Mary just said, Hey, they're teenagers, what can you do? We just love them and and we'll let God sort out everything else. The Rosettis at church bit their tongues when when the Thompsons said things like that. When Paul and Emma had their kids, they took a completely different approach. Both of them had been raised by parents who had drunk deeply of the 1960s counterculture and its complete lack of structure and discipline, and they had resolved that their children would not enter adulthood with the disadvantages they did. And they certainly had biblical support for the rules and consequences they taught and adhered to. The fourth commandment was often referred to in their home. Sure, the Rosettis loved their kids, but but it was more important that those children knew how a good Christian was supposed to live and, and did it. Everyone they met commented on how well behaved those kids were. But it wasn't until the children were much older that Emma realized that no one, no one ever said anything about those kids looking happy. That was a level of introspection you you never would have found in the Graber home. There just wasn't time for such deep thinking. Jack was a lawyer in a big downtown firm, and it seemed that, that when he wasn't in the office or court, he was at some dinner or outing or award ceremony with clients or the other partners. And Though his Mercedes made the hour-long commute more comfortable, he often used that time to conduct business on the phone. Though Michelle, his wife, was theoretically a stay-at-home mom, their kids often didn't know where she was during the day. She told everyone she was busy all day with volunteer work and serving on this committee and that committee. But when she came home every evening, usually bringing carry-out from an upscale restaurant, She couldn't hide the bags from Neiman Marcus, Nordstrom, and Saks. When both Jack and Michelle were home, the kids often heard them fighting. At the rate she spent their money, he wasn't going to be able to afford the sailboat he'd had his eye on for so long. The children learned early that if there was something they wanted, they were supposed to get it. And if they didn't, whining worked. But for both kids and parents, enough was never enough. There was always something more to grasp for. One thing they were sure to do, though, was to go to church every Sunday they were in town. It was important that everyone knew that they were good, upstanding Christians in their community, and the kids well-dressed and behaved. And what about the churches? 
Maybe you know First Church of any town, which was founded early in the last century by immigrant farmers from the old country, and which struggles now to fill its pews or pay its bills because, well, the younger generations just keep moving away. They haven't figured out a solution, but they are determined to make sure that their church survives, because how else can they ensure that their ethnic identity does not disappear from the community? Or there's the downtown church of today, which comes from a long and rich denominational history, but whose doctrinal teaching bears little resemblance to what its founders once believed. But they are doing the work of God, loving their neighbor, the downtrodden, the poor, the oppressed, the unhappy, even when their neighbor doesn't want their love. They don't judge, but they are happy to share their better knowledge with those who need it, and they regularly criticize those wrong-minded churches that do judge sinners. Every Sunday finds a new appeal to, to get out into the committee, com community, to work change, to vote, to counter the work of those who oppose the work they do in Christ's name. Especially the Bible Holiness Church on the next block. Because that church tends to see the hungry and homeless and addicted and abused as suffering the right and proper consequences of their own sinful choices. If only everyone would follow the Ten Commandments and all the other instructions of Scriptures and all the good suggestions their pastors and teachers add, well, then, then all would be well with the community and the world. The key to happiness, heaven, and blessing they emphasize and evangelize is obedience. Chances are you recognized someone or something from one or more of those stories. Maybe from your own experience, maybe from that of somebody you know. They are all different stories of different kinds of families and family members, but, but what do they have in common? They are all at least outwardly Christian, but they don't have what Christians are supposed to have. They don't have peace. They don't have comfort or confidence or joy, because really none of them have or hold on to the gospel. They have Jesus' name, but they don't have Jesus. Even the parents and churches that claim to be all about love don't really have it, because they have disconnected themselves from the source of real love, the Lord and His grace. And what do they end up with? It may not show itself immediately, but eventually fear arrives in people's hearts because at the end of the day and at the end of their lives, they really don't know whether they have loved enough, obeyed enough, or grasped enough to escape hell and gain heaven. That doesn't stop them in the meantime from having pride and arrogance because all that loving and obeying they do makes them feel pretty good about themselves in the short term, but it also brings them into conflict with everyone who takes a different approach. So what you have is families, parents and children and families of faith, families who may not even realize that they have turned away from Christ 
even as they claim him as their brother. They have made, we might summarize, one of two errors. The first is putting God's word in the wrong place. As Moses made clear to the Israelites, it is supposed to be in and on our hearts. If it is not there, well, we cannot love it or love God who gave it or love our neighbor. We may put the Lord's name on our lips, on our church signs, on, on our good works to the poor, on, on above our family's doorpost, wherever. But if our hearts are not filled with faith in the God of love and trust in the word that he gives us and instructs us by, faith which then flows forth in love for him and for others, well then, then God's name and God's word do us no good. The other error is adopting, usually without even thinking about it, adopting the idea that we can love God with less, love him with less than all our heart, less than all our soul, less than all our mind, less than all our might. But that is not an option he gives us. We don't get to worship Christ on Sundays and forget about him all the rest of the week. We don't get to pick and choose from the Bible the things we like and disregard the things we don't. We don't get to make money or career or cars or sports or popularity or fun or fame our number one priority and still claim to fear, love, and trust in God above all things. As the expert in the law answered Jesus in our gospel today, to love the Lord with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And what this means when we do stop and think about it, when we do apply it to ourselves, this means that every one of us deserves God's wrath and punishment because we do not measure up. We do not do what we are called upon, commanded, required to do. We fail every day and in every way to love God with everything we are and have and fail to love our neighbors as ourselves. And that is simply sin. And the wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, but damnation for eternity to hell. We have no way to fix things. No way to make up for our failings. No way to, to love our way out of our failure to love. Which is why we rejoice to know what our brother Jesus has done for us. He took our place. The Son of God left His home in heaven to take on flesh like ours so that He could take care of our sins and their punishment once and for all. As our reading from Hebrews told us, He was holy, innocent, pure, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. But in love for us, He gave His life for us. He sacrificed for sins once and for all when he offered himself. On the cross, Jesus made the great exchange. 
He took on our guilt and God's wrath against us, and in return, He gave us His perfect righteousness. He rose from the dead, and now all who put their trust in Him have everything that He came to give us. Forgiveness of every sin. Salvation from every danger and threat. A new identity as the children of God. A place in God's family and eternal life in heaven's bliss. And now, now because we have been made pure and holy in Christ, because of what He did for us at the cross, now we have the ability and the deep desire to do all the things that God's perfect law calls us to do. Because of the grace shown to us in Christ, you can and you want to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The Holy Spirit has given you the faith which takes hold of that salvation and perfection. And through the means of grace, He strengthens, equips and enables you for every work he calls you to. And so we love. We love God. We love our neighbors. And we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. As Paul told the Galatians, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. This, this loving is who we are as the family of God. And this is what we do. God's love for us is a treasure. His grace and His mercy are treasures. The cross of Christ is a treasure. The Bible and baptism and the Lord's Supper are treasures. The absolute and unchanging truths of the Scriptures are treasures Every expression of His will and all the wisdom of His Word are treasures. And we, you and I, are stewards of these treasures. They are family heirlooms that have been passed on to us for our safekeeping and our use. We not only value them and preserve them, we regularly use them and share them. And this is what Moses encourages us to do so vividly in our text from Deuteronomy. To not only hold on to the confession of our faith in the Lord, to not only love Him, but also then to keep His words. All of them. Keep them on our hearts. And then to make sure that they are also on the hearts of our children and on everyone in our homes and our families and our churches. He says, teach them diligently to your children and speak about them when you sit in your house and when you walk on the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as a sign on your wrists and they will serve as symbols on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, we don't have to literally tie Bible verses on our wrists or, or put them on our heads or houses, but figuratively, of course, this is what we want to do. Our Father loved us so much, He gave His only Son to be our Savior. 
So we want God's words always with us and his wisdom and love always with our children and his words of grace, his messages of love always with our brothers and sisters in faith. So we pass them on, teaching, encouraging, memorizing, and we make sure that they are preserved in their truth, their purity, and their relevance. These are our treasures as the family of God, and nothing can compare to or replace them, nothing on this earth. What God has so lovingly given to us We, as believers in Christ, as fathers and mothers, as children, as Christ Lutheran Church, we in love keep these treasures on our hearts and we give back to Him with our lives all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This, this is our joy in Christ. Amen. Please rise. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.